Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. New York, this is Democracy Now! Because of the war on Gaza and as a sign of mourning of the thousands of civilians murdered there, the churches in the Holy Land decided to cancel all Christmas festivities. Christmas has been canceled. We'll go to Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus Christ. Public Christmas festivities have been canceled in the occupied West Bank city as Israel intensifies its assault on Gaza and arrests thousands in the West Bank. We'll speak to a prominent Palestinian Christian theologian in Bethlehem. Then the United Nations Security Council is preparing to finally vote on a watered-down resolution on aid to Gaza after the United States repeatedly pushed for delays, even though the U.N. is warning more than half a million Palestinians, about a quarter of the population, face catastrophic hunger and starvation. It's quite shameful and disgraceful, to be honest, from the American administration to look the other side, because they are complicit in this genocide. They have blood of Palestinian children uh, on their hands, admittedly. Uh, this is, in fact, another Nakba with frequent serious signals of a genocide unfolding before our eyes. Plus, we speak to Sonia Guajajara, Brazil's first ever Minister of Indigenous Peoples. And so now we need to rebuild and strengthen public policies in health, education, fighting racism and environmental racism and being able to have more specific measures to reduce the emissions that are causing these changes. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Palestinian officials report 390 people have been killed and more than 700 injured in Israeli strikes on Gaza over the past two days. In one of the latest attacks, an Israeli air raid killed four people, including Bassem Kaben, the director of the Israeli-controlled Karim Abu Salem border crossing, who'd been working to bring desperately needed aid into Gaza. This comes, as the United Nations reports, more than half a million Palestinians are starving amidst Israel's siege and unrelenting bombardment of the Gaza Strip. Arif Hussein is chief economist with the UN's World Food Program. In the world... Right now, there are about 130,000 people who are in catastrophic levels of hunger, meaning they are starving. In Gaza, more than half a million. That is four times more. And that is what makes this totally unprecedented. On Thursday, Hamas ruled out any more exchanges of captives until Israel agrees to a, quote, full cessation of aggression, unquote. Meanwhile, Israel has for the seventh time severed Gaza's phone and Internet connections. 
The Committee to Protect Journalists reports more media workers have been killed in the first 10 weeks of Israel's assault on Gaza than have ever been killed in a single country over an entire year. CPJ said it was particularly concerned about a pattern of targeting journalists and their families by the Israeli military. On Thursday, scores of Al Jazeera staffers held protest at the network's headquarters in Doha, as well at the site of a school in Gaza, where camera operator Samar Abu Dhaka was killed in an Israeli drone strike. The same attack injured Al Jazeera Arabic's Gaza bureau chief, Wael Dadu, who lost his wife, his son, his daughter and grandson in another strike last month. A number of journalists rallied around him at the same time in Gaza as the journalists stood in the Doha studios and at the U.N. school that was bombed. Outside Al Jazeera's office in Amman, Jordan, dozens more rallied. This is Al Jazeera correspondent Tamar Al-Smadi. We stand here at Al Jazeera's office in Amman with a number of representatives from local Arab and international media institutions to highlight what Israel did in killing journalists, not just Samir Abu Dhaka, but more than 90 journalists in the Gaza Strip who were martyred due to Israeli airstrikes and deliberate targeting. Jordan's foreign minister, Ayman Safadi, has warned the failure of the UN Security Council to pass a resolution on Gaza will mean dangerous double standards, as the U.S. delayed a vote on Thursday for the fourth day in a row. The U.S. delegation has indicated it would back a new resolution with watered-down language, which is set for a vote today. An earlier vetoed Security Council resolution called for a ceasefire. The U.S. vetoed that. Subsequent texts called for a suspension of hostilities and ultimately now to urgent steps to allow safe and unhindered delivery of aid to Gaza's civilians. A Human Rights Watch investigation has found Meta's content moderation policies are increasingly silencing voices in support of Palestine on its Facebook and Instagram social media platforms. The 51-page report released this week by Human Rights Watch documents more than a thousand cases of meta censorship in 60 countries in what HRW calls, quote, a pattern of undue removal and suppression of protected speech, including peaceful expression and support of Palestine in public debate about Palestinian human rights, unquote. Here in New York, thousands of protesters led by union organizers marched to the streets of Manhattan Thursday evening to demand a ceasefire and end to the influence of the powerful lobby group APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. Protesters marched past APAC's offices holding banners displaying the hundreds of thousands of dollars in campaign contributions received by New York lawmakers Chuck Schumer, Kirsten Gillibrand and Hakeem Jeffries. Meanwhile, dozens of Israeli Jewish activists gathered for a vigil today outside the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem calling for a ceasefire and mourning the 20,000 Palestinians killed in Gaza. 
France is closing its embassy in Niger indefinitely amidst ongoing tensions between the two nations following the July military coup which ousted President Mohamed Bazoum. The French ambassador to Niger left in September. Around 150 French troops are departing Niger today, the last of the soldiers to leave since the withdrawal started in October. But the military junta has not ordered U.S. military bases to close, where over 600 troops remain in the largely failed fight against jihadist groups. The Biden administration's approved two more permits for the Mountain Valley Pipeline, or MVP, which would carry two billion cubic feet of frack gas through Virginia and West Virginia. On Tuesday, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, granted MVP's request to increase its gas transportation rates after the company's estimated construction costs ballooned to over $6.6 billion, nearly double its initial projection. The FERC also granted MVP more time to complete work on a proposed 75-mile extension into North Carolina. Indigenous environmental activist Jason Crazy Bearkeck said in a statement, quote, FERC's decision to extend MVP Southgate Certificate of Public Need, which subjects our streams, rivers, and community members to seizing of land and irreversible pollution against our will with no proof of need, is a crime against us and future generations, they said. Millions of residents in Southern California remain under flood advisories today after some areas received a month's worth of precipitation in less than an hour in what meteorologists called a once-in-a-millennium rainfall event. This comes as forecasters are predicting a snowless Christmas holiday for parts of Canada and much of the U.S. East Coast and Midwest, with rain and record highs forecast in Chicago and Minneapolis. This month, climate scientists confirmed 2023 will officially be the hottest year on record, with carbon dioxide levels in Earth's atmosphere at their highest level in about 14 million years. In Tacoma, Washington, a jury acquitted three police officers in the 2020 killing of 33-year-old Manuel Ellis, an unarmed black man. The officers violently arrested and beat him on the side of the road. He died while in handcuffs telling officers, I can't breathe. The Pierce County Medical Examiner ruled the cause of death was homicide from oxygen deprivation due to physical restraint. Following the verdict Thursday, community members took to the streets to demand justice for Manuel Ellis. This is organizer and incoming city council member Jamaica Scott. We're not going to sit here and cry. We're not going to pout. We're not going to let a not guilty verdict in a kangaroo court deter us from what we know to be righteous. To be true. A Washington Post investigation has found a Republican-led crackdown on alleged voter fraud has overwhelmingly targeted Democrats and people of color. The Post found Black and Latinx people made up more than 70 percent of defendants accused of voter fraud in states including Florida, Texas and Ohio, with registered Democrats more than two and a half times as likely as Republicans to be prosecuted. So-called election integrity units in Virginia, Georgia, and Arkansas failed to obtain a single guilty verdict despite millions of dollars spent investigating alleged irregularities. 
In Michigan, former President Donald Trump personally pressured two Republican members of the Wayne County Board of Canvassers not to sign the certification of the 2020 presidential election after his loss to Joe Biden. That's according to the Detroit News, which reviewed audio of a November 17th, 2020 phone call in which Trump told the canvassers they'd look terrible if they signed the documents. After the call, the two officials tried but failed to rescind their votes to certify Biden's election win and filed legal affidavits saying they were pressured. Meanwhile, Trump's former attorney, Rudy Giuliani, filed for bankruptcy protection in New York Thursday, just a day after a federal judge ruled he must immediately pay the $148 million he owes to former Georgia election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. Giuliani was found liable in August for defaming the African-American mother and daughter after he falsely accused them of committing fraud as they tallied ballots in Atlanta during the 2020 election, leading to a torrent of death threats against them from Trump supporters. In his Chapter 11 filing, Giuliani listed debts of up to half a billion dollars, including nearly $1 million in unpaid taxes. However, U.S. District Judge Beryl Howell remains skeptical, writing, quote, such claims of Giuliani's financial difficulties, no matter how many times repeated or publicly disseminated and duly reported in the media, are difficult to square with the fact that Giuliani affords a spokesperson who accompanied him daily to trial, the judge said. The Czech Republic will observe a national day of mourning Saturday as the country reels following its worst ever mass shooting. The gunman, believed to be 24-year-old student David Kozak, opened fire at Prague's Charles University Thursday, killing at least 14 people and wounding 25 others. He was confirmed dead at the scene. The shooter is also suspected of killing his father earlier in the day before the rampage at the university. Video shows a group of students balanced precariously on a building's open ledge as they sought to escape the gunman. Kozak was reportedly inspired by recent mass shootings in Russia. This is a former student of Charles University who was visiting his mother, her mother, who lives next to the school at the time of the shooting. It looks like something unprecedented in the country, and I think everybody is completely shaken. For us, it's even worse because we're locals. And in California, a federal judge blocked a state law that would have banned carrying firearms in most public spaces less than two weeks before it was due to go into effect. Governor Gavin Newsom signed the law in September, which would bar guns in parks, playgrounds, medical facilities, places of worship, banks, and on public transportation, among other places. Judge Cormac Carney, who was appointed by former President George W. Bush, said the law was, quote, repugnant to the Second Amendment. California's Attorney General Rob Bonta is appealing the ruling. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Christmas has been canceled in Bethlehem. As the death toll tops 20,000 in Gaza, we begin today's show in the occupied West Bank. Yes, in the city of Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus Christ. The Christmas season is normally a festive time in Bethlehem, but not this year, as church leaders have canceled public Christmas festivities, citing Israel's devastating attack on Gaza. This is the Reverend Isaac Munther, the Palestinian pastor 
of a landmark Lutheran church in Bethlehem. He addressed his congregation earlier this month in front of a nativity scene with the figure of Jesus Christ in a kafia surrounded by rubble. Christmas is a ray of light and hope from the heart of pain and suffering. Christmas is the radiance of life from the heart of destruction and death. In Gaza, God is under the rubble. He is in the operating room. If Christ were to be born today, he would be born under the rubble. I invite you to see the image of Jesus and every child killed and pulled from under the rubble, and every child struggling for life in destroyed hospitals, and every child in incubators. Christmas celebrations are canceled this year, but Christmas itself is not and will not be canceled, for our hope cannot be canceled. That was the Reverend Isaac Munther, the Palestinian pastor of a landmark Lutheran church in Bethlehem. He spoke in front of a nativity scene with the figure of Christ surrounded by rubble, the baby Jesus. Earlier this week, Pope Francis accused Israel of committing terrorism in Gaza after an Israeli sniper shot dead two women, an elderly woman and her adult daughter, who had tried to, tried to save her mother at a Catholic church in Gaza City, where they had sought refuge. It was the Holy Family Parish Church. Politico reports Israel recently attacked a church and a convent in Gaza, even though congressional staffers in Washington had urged Israel to protect the religious sites and gave them the coordinates of the churches. We go now to Bethlehem, where we're joined by the Reverend Mitri Raheb. He's president of Dar al-Khalima University in Bethlehem, Palestinian Christian theologian who's authored many books, including Decolonizing Palestine, the Land, the People, the Bible. It's hard to say Merry Christmas to you, uh, Reverend Professor Dr. Mitri Rahab, um, but I will ask you how you're observing Christmas this year. Talk about Bethlehem. You know, it's a very sad Christmas. I don't think in my entire life uh, I experienced uh, so much sadness, but also so much anger about what's happening in Gaza. Um, as you said, the celebration, I mean, the festivities were canceled in Bethlehem. So you don't have Christmas lights. You don't have Christmas tree in Bethlehem. There are no tourists coming because of the war. Um, and the people are uh, not up for celebrations uh, because our people in Gaza, uh, but not only our people in Gaza, also our people in the West Bank. We here in the West Bank, uh, we experiencing uh, apartheid. Uh, colonization by uh, Jewish settlers uh, and, um, you know, the death tolls, uh, as you said, 20,000 in Gaza, but also even in the West Bank in the hundreds um, and also the, the, the detainees, Palestinian detainees within these 75 days in the West Bank are over 3,000. You have said that the story of Christmas, the story of the birth of Jesus, is more relevant now than ever, even though you will not be having festivities around this. Uh, correct, uh, because uh, the, the Christmas story actually is a Palestinian story par excellence. It talks about a family in Nazareth, in the north of Palestine, that is ordered 
by an imperial decree of the Romans uh, to evacuate to Bethlehem, to go there and register. And this is exactly what our people in Gaza has been experiencing these 75 days. Uh, it talks about uh, Mary, the pregnant woman, uh, on the run, uh, exactly like 50,000 uh, women uh, in Gaza who are actually displaced. Um, Jesus was born actually as a refugee. There was no place at the end for him to be born. So he was put uh, in a manger. And this is exactly what also the kids uh, that are coming to life these days in, in Gaza are experiencing. You know, uh, most of the hospitals are uh, damaged, uh, out of service. Um, and so uh, uh, there is no delivery places for all of these pregnant uh, women in Gaza. And then you have the, the bloodthirsty Herod that uh, ordered to kill the kids in Bethlehem to stay in power. Uh, and in Gaza, over 8,000 kids, they have been murdered uh, for Netanyahu to stay in power. Uh, um, and uh, and you have this uh, message that the angels declared here, uh, glory to God in the highest peace on earth, which was actually a critique of the empire uh, because glory... Uh, belongs to the Almighty and not to the mighty. And uh, the peace uh, that Jesus came to proclaim is not the peace, the Pax Romana, the peace that is based on subjugation uh, and military oppression, but on human dignity, equality, and justice. Uh, and this is actually what we call for. And I have to say, I find it uh, really a shame that uh, that in this season, where uh, every church uh, hears these words, peace on earth, that the United States is vetoing even a ceasefire. It's a shame. I wanted to ask you about this report in Politico. Congressional staff tried to protect Gazan churches by sending locations to Israel. That's the headline. Now, you're in Bethlehem in the occupied West Bank, and this is about Gaza. The Israeli military received and confirmed the coordinates of the church and covenant in Gaza, both of which aid groups say were later struck by rockets and snipers. Um, it goes on to say the Holy Family Church in Gaza was struck last weekend. The location of the church was included on a list of coordinates provided to the Israeli military by aid organizations and staffers on Capitol Hill in an effort to protect those sheltering there. We reported in the last few days, among others, about the mom, the elderly mother and her daughter um, who were sheltering at the Holy Family Church. This is what the Pope referred to when he talked about Israel engaging in terrorism. Um, first, the mom was hit. The daughter carries her and then she's hit. This is Pope Francis speaking on his 87th birthday at the Vatican Sunday. Yes. And let us not forget our brothers and sisters suffering from war in Ukraine, Palestine, Israel, and other conflict zones. May the approach of Christmas strengthen our commitment to open paths of peace. I continue to receive from Gaza very serious and painful news. Unarmed civilians are being bombed and shot at. And this has even happened inside the Holy Family Parish compound, where there are no terrorists, but families, children, and sick people with disabilities, and nuns. A mother and her daughter, Miss Nahar. 
Nahida Khalil Antan and her daughter Samar Kamal Antan were killed and others wounded by the snipers as they went to the bathroom. The house of Mother Teresa's nuns was damaged. Their generator hit. Some say it's terrorism. It's war. Yes, it's war. It's terrorism. That is why scripture says that God stops war, breaks bows, and breaks spears. Let us pray to the Lord for peace. So that's the Pope speaking on his 87th birthday. Um, I want to go on with this political piece. Um, it says, A church and a convent were struck in Gaza, listed among Christian facilities. Congressional staffers had flagged to Israeli authorities for protection, according to a series of emails from October. The emails, which were obtained by Politico, show an increasingly frenzied back and forth between Catholic Relief Services, one of the largest Christian aid organizations, in Gaza and Senate staff over an effort to get a commitment from Israel to avoid targeting a number of buildings where its staff and civilians were sheltering, they would ultimately be attacked. Um, Reverend Mitri Rahab, your response. You know, uh, Israel have been attacking uh, churches, mosques, hospitals, schools, universities. Believe it or not, uh, 11 universities were destroyed in this war. Over 200 schools uh, were destroyed. Uh, most of the hospitals, except uh, nine, are out of service right now because of Israeli attacks on them. But let's come to the churches, you know. This is not the first attack that happened last uh, Saturday that the, that the Pope uh, talked about. Uh, because uh, the first attack on a Christian institutions happened to the Ahli Hospital the so-called Baptist hospitals that belong actually to the Anglican Church. Uh, and then Israel uh, uh, had an airstrike on the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, St. Uh, Perfurius, uh, where they uh, destroyed fully the assembly hall of that church, uh, where 50 Christians uh, were having refuge, uh, 20 were killed, uh, and 14 were injured. Uh, and then Israel destroyed a brand new state-of-the-art uh, Arab Orthodox uh, cultural and social uh, center. Uh, it costed $6 million. Uh, it was inaugurated just a few months ago, and it was made to rebels. It doesn't exist anymore. You cannot see it anymore. Uh, and then Israel attacked the Rosary Sister, another Catholic school. Uh, this last week they attacked, and the Pope uh, spoke about it, uh, um, actually a rehabilitation center uh, for children with disability that is run by the sisters of uh, Mother Teresa. Uh, and um, and they attacked again last week uh, the Ahli Hospital that is now almost out of service uh, beside the sniper killing uh, this uh, to the older woman with her daughter within the uh, Holy Family compound. And you know what? When uh, some other parishioners in that compound wanted to go out to help them and to to save them, uh, Israel uh, uh, launched a missile on them, and 10 uh, people from that uh, parish uh, were uh, injured in that, uh, in that missile attack. I'm on daily basis uh, in contact with, with those two parishes uh, to see how they are doing. And I tell you, uh, just a few hours ago, I received again another cry for help that that compound, the Holy Family compound, is surrounded by Israeli tanks and uh, Israeli snipers are all around on the 
rooftops of the neighboring buildings. Uh, and this is just two days before Christmas. These are the Christmas gifts of Israel for the Christian community in Gaza. And I fear that uh, this is the end uh, of the Christian presence in Gaza. And you know, the Christian presence in Gaza is a 2,000 years old presence. I mean, this these are not new converts. Uh, uh, Christianity came to Gaza already in the first century. And throughout the last 20 centuries, there was uh, a living Christian uh, work there. And actually, uh, an affluent uh, Christian community in Gaza. Uh, and I think uh, this, uh, uh, this community is going to be extinct uh, because of uh, Israel's war uh, on Gaza. 3% of the Christian community in Gaza was murdered in these 75 days. 3%. I wanted to play for you, uh, and we played this earlier in the week, the deputy mayor of Jerusalem, Fleur Hassan Houm, recently appearing on British news program LBC and claiming, in fact, there are no Christians in Gaza. Why is it necessary, it would, is reported, to start shooting, having snipers outside a church? I don't. I saw the reports this morning. Um, the church, there are no churches in Gaza, so I'm not quite sure where the report well, is, is, is talking a, there's about. There's a Catholic church in there, isn't there, that is... Yeah, unfortunately, there are no Christians because they were dry, dro driven, driven out by... Well, there are, respectfully, there are Christians because I spoke to an MP yesterday who has family members in the church who are Christians. Well, I don't Unless know what happened. I don't know who was attacked. I didn't see the report. So that's uh, the Jerusalem deputy mayor, Fleur Hassan Nahum, speaking on the British news program, LBC. Um, your response, Reverend? You know, I mean, we are unfortunately used uh, for, to Israeli lies uh, and fake news uh, uh, that they keep uh, spreading. You know, how they cannot know that there are uh, a Christian community in Gaza. I mean, uh, you, you spoke before that they got the coordinate of the two churches, uh, like they get also the coordinate of the hospitals. Um, and um, remember, these Christians every year uh, were applying for permits to come over Christmas to Bethlehem. So the Israeli authorities, they know everyone by name, by picture, by age, by gender, uh, uh, again, but these are the lies. And you know why Israel can do all of this? Because uh, they are impugned. Uh, nobody, because of the American veto, brings them actually and makes them responsible for what they are doing. And now they actually are destroying all of Gaza. And guess who will pay for it? They will call uh, some Arab countries or Europe or others to rebuild Gaza. Once Israel is made responsible for its uh, its atrocities, they will stop doing that. Uh, and uh, for me as a pastor, I have to say, you know, imagine, imagine if a synagogue uh, was attacked and 20 Jewish worshippers in a synagogue were killed by an airstrike by any country. The whole Christian world will be in uproar. Unfortunately, we don't have the, we don't hear the Christian community actually doing much about the atrocity happening in Gaza today.
Reverend Rahab, I wanted to ask you about um, your latest book, um, uh, Decolonizing Palestine, which challenges the weaponization of biblical text to support the current settler colonial state of Israel. That's how it's described. And I was wondering if you could comment on some of the most um, adamant um, supporters of the Israeli military are U.S. evangelicals. And some of the fiercest critics are progressive Jews, like Jewish Voice right. for Peace. And if you could comment right. on both. Yes. Uh, actually, in this book, uh, I try uh, to show that actually uh, the current state of Israel uh, in its occupation of the West Bank and Gaza uh, is actually a settler colonial project. And a settler colonial project means uh, uh, these are settlers that, that they come, in this case from Europe mainly, to settle permanently in, a, in another country, not to live with the native people, but to replace the native people and to drive them out of their own country. And to do that, they have to create a policing state uh, and they have to demonize uh, the native people as savage, uh, as terrorists, as backwards, as human animals, as we are hearing uh, from Israeli uh, politicians right now. And actually, if you uh, heard uh, Netanyahu uh, when, 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 he, uh, when he said that the Israeli troops are entering Gaza that same day in October, late October, uh, he quoted uh, the Bible uh, and talked about Amalek. And that is from First Samuel chapter 15, verse 3 where God is uh, telling uh, Saul uh, to go and um, extend the whole Amalek community, uh, not to spare man, woman, elderly, child, even ox and sheep. And so this is a call for genocide. Uh, and this is, again, a settler colonial uh, tool that was done in North America. It was done in South Africa. It was done in many other Country. So what happened in the United States 400 years ago to the Native Americans is happening to Palestinians today in Gaza. So this is what I'm talking about. And this weaponization of the weaponizing of the Bible by Christian Zionists uh, is, is something that is for us very troublesome. You know, for us, uh, these Christian Zionists are actually anti-Semite because they don't love the Jewish people. They want all Jews to come to Palestine according to their ideology, that two-thirds will be killed in a war and the last third will convert to Christianity. So basically they are calling for the annihilation uh, of the Jewish people, but Netanyahu has no problem to share bed with them, not out of love, but to fulfill uh, selfish desires, so to say. And I'm so glad that actually uh, Netanyahu doesn't represent the whole Jewish people. You know, Judaism is very broad, like Christianity and Islam. It's a very broad religion. You have from the far right to the far left. Uh, and for me, uh, groups like Jewish Voices for Peace, not in my names, and many other groups that uh, I'm in contact with them, they are a sign of hope uh, that actually uh, together uh, as Jews, Muslims, and Christians, uh, who are interested in equality and in human dignity and justice so that both peoples 
can share the land and the three religions can live side by side. I think this is the vision that we are calling for. Reverend Mitri Rahab, we want to thank you for being with us. Reverend Mitri Rahab is the president of Dar al-Khalima University in Bethlehem, Palestinian Christian theologian who's authored many books, including Decolonizing Palestine, the Land, the People, the Bible. Coming up, the United Nations Security Council is preparing possibly to vote on a watered-down resolution on aid to Gaza after the U.S. repeatedly pushed for delays, even though the U.N. is warning more than half a million Palestinians, about a quarter of the population, face catastrophic hunger and starvation. Back in 20 seconds. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations Security Council is preparing to vote on a watered-down resolution on aid to Gaza after the United States pushed for the vote to be delayed four times this week as Israel continued its massive assault on Gaza that's killed, at this point, over 20,000 Palestinians, reaching about the death of 1 percent of the Gazan population. Health officials in Gaza say at least 390 Palestinians have been killed over the last 48 hours. The United Nations is warning more than half a million Palestinians in Gaza, about a quarter of the population, face catastrophic hunger and starvation. We go now to Ahmed Aboufoul. He is a Gaza-born attorney who works as a legal research and advocacy officer at Al-Haq, the oldest Palestinian human rights organization. He recently wrote an article headlined, We Are Witnessing a Genocide Unfolding in Gaza. To stop it, the ICC prosecutor must apply the law without fear or favor. Ahmed is joining us from New York City. We welcome you to Democracy Now! When you use the term genocide, you're an international human rights lawyer. Explain exactly what you mean and why you believe this applies to Gaza, Ahmed Abafoul. Thank you for having me, uh, first of all. Second of all, the, the word genocide is a legal term that is uh, um, specifically defined in international law, and it's also a crime that has... Uh, elements. Once these elements are met, the crime is committed. And uh, as you know, this is a term that has not been used uh, um, a lot before in the context of Palestine, although the crime, we believe, it has been committed. So, for example, it happened in 1948. Uh, many would argue, and I agree, was an act of genocide. The only reason we didn't call it genocide then that we didn't have the concept of genocide had crystallized yet. We didn't have the genocide convention. We didn't have the definition. It was also uh, um, used in the context of Palestine in the Sabran Shatila massacre. Uh, and this is the only time that the UN described the situation as genocide. Genocide in international law is uh, a crime, and it's defined when uh, um, there is certain 
underlying acts are being committed with the special intent to destroy in whole or in part a certain uh, uh, ethnic or re religious or political group. And in this case, uh, we believe the situation in Gaza is that of genocide. Usually in genocide, uh, the hardest thing to prove is the mental element and the special intent to commit genocide. And in order to prove that, courts usually recourse to statements of the perpetrators. In this particular situation, we have numerous statements of genocidal intent that are also being translated into actions on the ground. We see the level of destruction, the disregard of, of uh, human life, the, uh, in the words of Biden, the indiscriminate bombing of, uh, of civilians. And this is not only our uh, conclusion as Palestinian human rights organizations. As a matter of fact, 800 genocide and Holocaust scholars have also described the, the situation as genocide. Uh, and uh, certain scholars describe it as a textbook uh, case of genocide. Now, Ahmed Abufoul, if you can talk personally about Gaza, about um, your homeland. You grew up in Gaza or were born in Gaza. In fact, your name, Ahmed Abufoul, didn't someone in your family by that same name just die? Well, uh, now over 60 of my family have died, including my, uh, have been killed, to be accurate, uh, um, including my eldest uncle, some of my uh, cousins. Um, and like most Palestinians, we don't feel like we even have the luxury to grieve. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm considering the level of, of destruction and, and the, the horrific crimes that are being committed. Uh, it's really heartbreaking. We've always grew up to hear the stories of the Nakba. We, we've never imagined that we would live it. It happened in 1948 because it wasn't televised. The world didn't know what's going on in Palestine. But now it's it's quite disgraceful that it's, it's a televised carnage and the world is, is literally watching. Uh, you mentioned the Security Council uh, resolution that was watered down and will be voted on today. But if, if you look at this situation and if you look at, at the voting record, it's basically the U.S. versus the world. The U.S. is actually uh, uh, promoting this genocide, supporting this genocide. I would never know. And most probably my family was killed by American weapons. Our children are being torn apart on TV, on your TV screens, by American tax money, by the support of the American government. The American government is complicit in this genocide. There is blood of Palestinian children on their hands. And that's why with our partners in the U.S., uh, um, with the Center for Constitutional Rights, and I know, I know you interviewed uh, Katie Gallagher, who spoke uh, more about this, but we're suing Biden um, and uh, President Biden, but also Secretary of State um, Blinken and Secretary of Defense Austin, not only for their complicity in genocide, but also for the failure to prevent genocide. If there's any country in the world that can influence Israeli policies is uh, the, the U.S. And if, if you allow me, I, I mentioned that I come from a refugee family, so I'm not originally from Gaza. Like like over 75% of the population in Gaza are refugees. So when we say this is a second Nakba, it is a second Nakba. In, in 1948, over 80% of the Palestinian population were uh, forcibly uh, displaced. Now we have over 90% of the population that is uh, displaced. We have uh, over 60% of Gaza's uh, residential units have been destroyed. Um, um, most of the population are on the edge of starvation. Uh, it's quite shameful, to be honest, that until this very moment, uh, 
the U.S. cannot do the bare the, the bare minimum of human decency, which is calling for a ceasefire and trying to provide diplomatic coverage for for the genocide that is uh, unfolding in Gaza. So can you account for, on the one hand, you have President Biden uh, warning Israel about indiscriminate bombing. And on the other hand, you have the U.S. dragging its feet all week. Um, yesterday, we thought right after the show, I think 10 a.m., they were going to be voting. But now it is Friday. Four times this vote has been delayed. Uh, a resolution that will clearly not be for a ceasefire. Can you explain the significance of what difference does a U.N. Security Council resolution even make? Um, is it binding? What would it mean? And what it has been are down to at this point today? Of course. Well, the Security Council resolutions are binding, although Israel has a history of, of, uh, of not respecting those resolutions. Uh, the U.S. has been trying to water down the language not to include clear call for an immediate ceasefire. Um, at the same time, they, they, they call for uh, safe and unhindered humanitarian um, uh, supplies and humanitarian aid, but at the same time, they don't call for a ceasefire. And quite strange formula from the U.S. on the one hand to want, to want safe and unhindered humanitarian access, but without stopping the fire. So basically, it wants humanitarian uh, aid workers to, to work under the hill that Israel unleashed on the Palestinian civilian population. And as you mentioned, Biden didn't only uh, warn the Israelis, he actually made a determination, and we agree with him. He said Israel is engaged in indiscriminate bombing. This is a war crime. So the question is, why do you then send weapons to Israel? The position of the U.S. is quite hypocritical, and the U.S. cannot claim uh, leadership uh, in the world because it's not showing us uh, that leadership. Actions speak louder than words. The U.S. Uh, or President Biden only yesterday uh, tweeted that um, the U.S. supports the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination. Two days before that, the U.S. voted against a resolution on the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination. So we don't want to see words. We want to see actions. And the hypocrisy of, of the U.S. is quite flattering. You know, a principled leadership and true leadership is about the consistent application of international law, the principled application of international law on your foes and your allies alike. Hypocrisy, double standards and selectivity don't reflect characteristics of leadership, uh, but of, of complicity in, in genocide. And if you allow me, what's at stake at the moment is not only the dehumanization of the Palestinian people and the genocide that they're facing, but also the whole body of international law is being put to test. Because basically, uh, we saw how the West, and uh, led by the U.S., mobilized this body of international law in the case of Ukraine. But in the case of, of, of Gaza, they're preventing or failing to do the bare uh, minimum, which is called for uh, for a ceasefire. Uh, so I think what's also at, at stake uh, is the credibility uh, and, and, and the reputation of the U.S., which always portrays itself as a beacon of, of democracy, but in fact is showing us that it, it supports uh, uh, genocide. And what's also, I think, interesting in this situation, that it's also putting all of these uh, quote-unquote liberal democracies to test because all polls shows that most Americans want the ceasefire, most uh, um, uh, Democrats uh, in Congress want the ceasefire, but there seems to be a disconnect between what the people want and what the what the U.S. leadership is is doing. So we call in on Biden and and the um, Biden administration to listen to their people 
to listen to their people and do the bare minimum, which is calling for a ceasefire. Ahmed, I want to thank you so much for being with us and also um, our condolences on the death of so many members of your family in Gaza. Ahmed Abufoul is Legal Research and Advocacy Officer at the Palestinian Human Rights Group, AHAC. We'll link to your piece. We're witnessing a genocide unfolding in Gaza. To stop it, the ICC prosecutor must apply the law without fear or favor. Coming up, we speak to Brazil's first-ever Minister of Indigenous Peoples, back in 20 seconds. By hand and by brain To earn you pay who for centuries long past For no more than your bread Have bled for your countries And counted your dead in the factories and mills In the shipyards song here on Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show with Sonia Guajajara, Brazil's first indigenous cabinet minister, country's first ever minister of indigenous peoples, took office a year ago to serve President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva's administration. I spoke to her in Dubai at the U.N. Climate Summit and asked her to talk about the issues facing Brazil following the presidency of the far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, who led Brazil from 2019 to 2022. We're in a moment of transition, going back to democracy in Brazil, rebuilding the rights that were taken away from us in these past few years, and strengthening actions and spaces for the participation of civil society in the federal government. And so now we need to rebuild and strengthen public policies in health, education, fighting racism and environmental racism and being able to have more specific measures to reduce the emissions that are causing these changes. Can you talk about what President Lula is doing right now when it comes to indigenous people's rights, when it comes to extractive industries, restoring the Amazon rainforest, ending deforestation in the Amazon by 2030? President Lula created the Ministry of Indigenous Peoples for the first time in 55 years. Our National Foundation of Indigenous Peoples has an Indigenous president. We're also running the Indigenous Peoples Health Services. This year's concrete actions were the removal of the invaders from the Yanomami territories, which significantly reduced deforestation in that territory. We also managed to get the illegal cattle ranchers out of the Apiterewa territory and of the Paracana people in the state of Pará. We've only 11 indigenous people demarcated in 10 years, and now eight indigenous lands have been recognized. So we're in the process of advancing with protection of indigenous people's rights and protecting these territories, which is important for reducing deforestation and achieving zero deforestation in the Amazon by 2030. Can you talk about the significance of the United States as historically the largest emitter of um, greenhouse gases. What difference it makes U.S. policy to the people of Brazil, to the indigenous people of Brazil? What would you like to most see the United States do or change? 
É, os Estados Unidos precisa assumir mais. The United States needs to have more ambitious goals here in the climate discussions and also support those countries that need financial support to protect their forests, to protect their indigenous peoples and their traditional communities. It is necessary that the wealthiest countries, which emit the most, should help those countries that don't have sufficient resources to pay the bill in order to adopt specific concrete measures. Minister Guajajara, how does it change things in Brazil to have your voice, the voice of indigenous people for the first time ever, included, uh, represented in the Brazilian government? Here at the climate conference, it's the first time that there is an indigenous minister. It is unprecedented. It is also the first time that an indigenous person headed up the Brazilian delegation. So I feel very honored to represent Minister Marina Silva here for these five days as head of the Brazilian delegation, speaking directly with the negotiators and participating directly in high-level discussions, playing a proactive role and bringing the voice, which is not only the voice of the indigenous peoples of Brazil, but the voice of the indigenous peoples worldwide. There are many indigenous peoples here, and it's been recognized that it's very important to have a ministry, to have a woman minister participating in this forum, making decisions. For us, this is historic. Can you talk about where you were born, where you grew up? I was born in Arariboia, an indigenous territory in the state of Maranhao in the Brazilian Amazon. It has several different Amazonian biomes, including the Cerrado. The Amazon is also coastal. When I was born, there were still many forests, and today one can notice the drastic change. We've lost more than 60% of our native plants in the forest. So climate change is not just a problem of the future. We're experiencing the consequences right now. And that is why we must proceed down this road by occupying these spaces, such as the ministry, and also stepping up commitments and accomplishment of goals. And can you also talk about what you're wearing? Now, normally, I don't ask a woman that question, but your headdress is so magnificent. Talk about the feathers, both um, on your head and also that are draped over your shoulders and your earrings. We continue to use our traditional clothing and other items, but we are at risk of not being able to use the accessories that mark our identities because of the climate crisis. We bring along our symbols of the people we bond to, and this also reflects how we live harmoniously with nature and how we use what is available to us. So we live with the forest, the animals, and the water, and we get from that everything we need, whether it's protected water to drink, food to eat, or the clothing we wear. Can you talk about violence against indigenous uh, environmental defenders 
It's not only an issue in Brazil, but all over the world. The number of environmentalists like in Honduras, Berta Cáceres, who are being murdered. How is President Lula dealing with this? How does this need to be dealt with? É, nós saímos aí de quatro anos que, que houve um incentivo muito grande. We have just emerged from four years in which there was a major incentive for attacking indigenous peoples, invading their territories. There was an increase in violence that was quite considerable in these past few years. But now we're working with President Lula to fight that violence, together with the Ministry of Human Rights, together with the Ministry for Racial Equality and the Ministry of the Environment, because those attacks stem from land conflicts, invasion of territories, illegal logging, illegal prospecting. These are actions that we're now carrying out in a coordinated fashion with other ministries, the Ministry of Justice, with the Federal Police, with the Environmental Institute, Indigenous Affairs Institute, all working together to end violence in the territories and in the frontier areas. What is your message to indigenous peoples around the world and what do you want to see come out of this UN climate summit? For the indigenous peoples, we need to prepare for the road that we need to head down in order to reach COP30, which is going to be held in Belém in the Brazilian Amazon. We also need to prepare so that we can have a direct impact on the debates that unfold here at the COP. And oftentimes, we are not even close to it. It's very important that we indigenous peoples participate in these forums. And there's a group that is directly on top of this. So we are here so that indigenous peoples can have more space in decision making. And the general message is that we have little time left. The big leaders, government leaders, need not only to take on commitments here, but also to understand that we are in a state of emergency. In order to emerge from that state of emergency, investment is needed, financing is needed, and protection so that we can all protect the planet. President Lula still has plans to do massive offshore oil drilling. As the first indigenous people's uh, minister, do you condemn this move? Are you weighing in on this? Do you support this? Look, in Brazil, we're at a moment of transition to clean energies as well. We're building that together. President Lula is committed to making that transition. And now we're using what is available to us, such as the wind and the water, so that we can emerge from the energy we're using today based on destruction, and so that we can have renewable energy that protects the peoples and that does not destroy the environment. Last question. Earlier this year, Ecuador voted to ban oil drilling in protected Amazon lands. Will you be pushing for Brazil to take similar steps? We're involved in that right now. President Lula is aware that we need to go forward with this transition. And together with the Ministry of Environment, we're working to act together and more quickly so that the transition can take place.
We urgently need renewable energy. Only with such a change will it be possible for us to overcome the emergency situation we find ourselves in today. That was Sonia Guajajara, Brazil's first indigenous cabinet minister, the country's first ever minister of indigenous peoples. I spoke to her in Dubai at the UN Climate Summit. On December 14th, Brazilian lawmakers overrode a veto by President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva in a move that could threaten land rights for indigenous people. The issue will be taken up by Brazil's Supreme Court. To see our full interview with her, a web exclusive at democracynow.org, go there. And that does it for our show. Tune in Monday for a Democracy Now! special, a tribute to blacklisted lyricist Yip Harburg, the man who put the rainbow in the Wizard of Oz. I'm Amy Goodman. This is another edition of Democracy Now! Happy Holidays.